Welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Tran. I'm joined always by Stephen Canastracy. Hello. <laughs> I haven't told you this, but my parents, they, they listen to the podcast and they, they, they get a, a kick out of your hellos, just so you know. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll keep changing it up then if people like it. Anyway, welcome <laughs> to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. As we said, this is episode number 10, where we'll be talking with a good friend of ours, Barry Bocanner. Stephen and I both play with Barry, uh, but Stephen, you play a little bit more regularly with Barry. What's what's your relationship with Mr. Bocanner? Well, I met him. Well, you passed my information along to him when he was um, starting the brass band in Northern Virginia, which is a British style brass band that he mentions in the episode. Um, and they were looking for a second euphonium player. And I reached out and they said, Sure, come along. So I play second euphonium with that group, and so I sit right next to Barry. Uh, he baritone. plays first baritone. First baritone. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. First baritone. Um, yeah. So I've gotten to know him. You know, sitting next to him in rehearsals and concerts, and he's he's a great guy and a very uh, interesting hobby of we'll say amassing instruments, as you'll see in the episode. He is not the hugest fan of the word collector, but yeah, he's got a, a bunch of period instruments, which he talks about in the episode. And um, really, really does a lot of research on these these horns that he buys. Um, and we had a great time talking to him and, and learning what he's learned about all of his instruments through museum trips and, and talking with instrument makers and whatnot. And similar to Eric Totman's uh, The Horn Collector episode, we'll be sure to include any pictures and links to uh, some of the, the stranger instruments that Barry might ta- be talking about in this episode. So for reference, be sure to go over to our website at eabbpodcast.com to the show notes section for this episode and you can actually see what the heck we're talking about with these things <laughs> and look pretty weird uh so go ahead and do that uh but steven what if one of our listeners uh really likes early american brass band music and they just can't find any cds they don't they don't know any way of purchasing any of this type of music where could they go to 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 find a rather extensive list about those well, Chris, I'm glad you asked because on our website, eabbpodcast.com, there's a tab in the main menu that says resources. One of those resources is a discography of um, early American brass band recordings. So you can go there, look at the discography page, and there will be information there as to the band, the album title, what the cover looks like, um, and a link to purchase it. So if you're looking for some new music to listen to while we're all uh, stuck inside, you can go over there and find a bunch of links to buy some really great albums. And there are also some other resources there, lists of bands um, who are active, and a very long list of other links that might be interesting um, to articles, databases, um, some instrument collections, pretty much anything that, that might be remotely related. Uh, there are some links there. Cool. And without further ado, here is episode number 10. <laughs> episode number 10. There's an R at the end of that. that word. <laughs> episode number 10 with Barry Buchanan. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
All right, welcome to the podcast, Barry Bocanner. Thank you so much for coming out this afternoon onto Zoom and speaking with us today. Oh, thank you. I've been uh, really enjoying the podcast. Thank you. How are Great. you doing Thanks. today? Quarantine treating you okay? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I um, for the longest time I had kind of felt uh, just a little depressed about the whole situation and hadn't picked up too many instruments and and all that. And and in the past couple of weeks, I've been oh yeah, let's let's <laughs> play. I like this. This is fun. So. And in a way, it's like it's been good, like forced time off in a way, both physically and mentally. And now it's kind of like a rediscovery and reintroduction at this point is able to feel fresh to yeah. a certain extent. I know some people don't feel that way at all, but <laughs> well, I, you know, I've I've got a lot of musical instruments here and uh, and they don't always get a lot of attention. And now I'm realizing this is a good opportunity to uh to pick up some of these less uh, used instruments and, and mm. get good at them and that sort of thing. So it's, yeah. it's fun. Cool. So I guess we can follow the formula that we've been, that's been proving true with some of our other interviews so far and kind of go a little bit more or less chronologically, if you don't mind. So starting relatively towards the beginning, can you kind of share some of your early musical background and, uh, sure. So, um, I grew up in kind of a musical household. My dad was in the National Symphony from, from 1960 to 2000 for 40 years. Wow. Uh, played clarinet. And uh, so I started on piano real early. That was kind of like, you're going to do this. And yeah, yeah. actually, one of those, you know, the music world is such a small world. And, and Denny Edelbrock kind of hit it on the head last week when he was talking to you guys about how you're going to meet all the same people over and over again. And they're <laughs> going to remember if you did a good job and we're on time and, yeah. and all that. Yeah. Uh, so in one of those those weird little coincidence things, my childhood piano teacher was Marjorie Lee, who was the accompanist on Dr. Bowman's album. Oh, nice. Oh, on wow. the, uh, the, the, the Carnegie Hall? One? Well, that's what it's called now. When they reissued it on CD, they, they said the first Carnegie Hall euphonium recital, and they added a few tracks. But mm -hmm. originally, it was just called Brian Bowman euphonium. Oh, okay. Nice. And, nice. and, awesome. uh, and then I, I studied with Dr. Bowman later. So, um, that, that's, that's kind of one of those neat little things where everybody knows everybody and it's, it's kind of neat. Yeah. So, um, I was, I was very serious about piano from a very young age. And, uh, and that was one of those piano studios where everybody had to do all the competitions and multiple recitals a year. And it was just, it was very high stress and, and it wasn't for me. So, Around the time I was in second grade, I, I told my parents, I've had enough. I don't want to play piano anymore, which is a, a decision I totally regret now every time I, tr I sit at a piano and try to play something. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I had to accompany my daughter's uh, Suzuki Book 3 cello recital a couple nice. weeks ago, which we live streamed. <laughs> and, and of course, with, uh, with everybody shut in, we couldn't get a piano accompanist to help her. So I had to right. do it. And, and, you know, that was, I've never practiced that hard in my life for, for Suzuki. <laughs> Book three, <laughs> piano accompaniments. Um, so totally regret having quit piano. Kids out there, don't do it. Keep playing piano. But um, but my my parents said, well, you got to play something. That's that's non negotiable. So I was like, all right, whatever. And a few weeks later, my dad uh, uh, came home with uh, a King baritone, you know, your American euphonium, and in, in the back of mm -hmm. the car, and said, okay, here you go. And um, <laughs> You know, I I, uh, I got some lessons uh, shortly after with uh, Elliot Shasnov, who was a trombone player in the Air Force Band at the time. Uh, now he's the trombone professor at uh, University of Illinois, I think. Uh, awesome guy, but um, got really good at that really fast and, and really enjoyed it. 
And uh, then when, when he retired from the Air Force Band, uh, I started taking lessons uh, with John Hewling, who was the assistant principal trombone player in the National Symphony, colleague of my dad's, carpool partner of my dad's. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I guess by the time I reached high school, I was, I was really darn good at euphonium. And I, I, I kind of said to myself, I really like doing this. I want to do this professionally. And then I, I kind of sat back and, and thought, well, gee, career options for a euphonium player are, <laughs> well, there's like, at the time, there weren't so many soloists and, and people who made careers of just being a soloist. But I, mm-hmm. you know, I thought, I don't want to be a teacher. That's not me. And I don't want to be in the military. That's definitely not me. <laughs> so I need to switch to trombone. Freshman year of high school, I switched to trombone. Um, I wasn't really big in the high school band thing. I, 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 I practiced a lot on my own. I played, I played in the youth orchestras and stuff like that. High school band, I didn't even do it uh, a few years. Hmm. So um, concert band music was never really all that interesting to me, especially the stuff that you played in high school. So as a result, I never got great at either euphonium or trombone <laughs> because I... <laughs> I I sort of I switched at the point that you know I was I was really good for a ninth grader at euphonium. I yeah. <laughs> I had been studying with Dr. Bowman and uh, you know probably wasting most of the great advice he gave me. Um, and then he moved to Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and uh, and left the Air Force and and so I switched to trombone and I never got to the point where I got really good at trombone and I never got to the point where I got uh, really good at euphonium either because I didn't I didn't like spend that you know, undergrad years playing euphonium, mm-hmm. trying to, to really make it amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I did a few years in, in music school and realized, you know, I'm having a lot of problems with my playing. I'm never going to be the kind of person that wins an audition for the New York Philharmonic and, and, you know, scraping together a living as, as in regional orchestras and stuff like that is, is a terrible life. I've, I've seen you know, friends do that. And, and, you know, while a lot of them really, really love the music, it's, it's hard to make a living doing that. Mm-hmm. And around the same time, I, um, I realized that I was actually really good with computers and, and got a job running a small ISP. And that was, you know, the early 1990s where, where that was, uh, that was cutting edge stuff. And, and, <laughs> uh, and I started making money and it was, it was a lot of fun. And I realized that, I really had a talent for doing this computer stuff and enjoyed it a lot. And, and it was great. So I didn't play any instruments for a few years. And uh, what ended up happening was, was after a few years of only playing on Easter and, and that sort of thing, you know, what I call every trombone player works day. Yeah. Uh, I started getting, uh, you know, some, some gigs playing in community orchestras and stuff like that. And, you know, lo and behold, all those problems I had when I was in school, working really, really hard to try and solve them, had just sort of magically gone away on their own. And and not having any stress of, of you got to be really good or else you're not never going to get a job. That that stress was was ruining it for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and just being able to enjoy it, I I could spend a lot more time. I didn't resent practicing. It it was fun. Hmm. And um and then I hit upon the uh, the the early music thing. The deal is living in DC here, there are mm-hmm. so many good euphonium and trombone players around, right? right? They're all here, especially yeah, euphonium. Yeah. But, but in, in DC as a pretty decent euphonium player. And, and, you know, 
I can hang. I'm pretty good, but I'm not like you guys. You guys are, are both amazing. You, your, your listeners might not know this, but you guys are, are, are really amazing, both of you. And, um, you know, while, while I can get together with the people in the service bands and, and I'm, I don't sound out of place, I'm not in danger of winning an audition or anything like that. It's, it's, <laughs> I just don't have the time to, to put in that level of practice and, and, and really get to that point. So um, what I figured out was that if you're the guy that has all the weird instruments that those people don't own, you can get some really good gigs just because <laughs> you're, you're the guy that's got the instrument. Uh, I guess my journey with early music and what today we call historically informed performance hip is that, um, you know, when I was a kid, I discovered my dad's LP of that, uh, that Gabrielli album with the Chicago and Cleveland oh, yeah. and Philadelphia brass yeah, yeah, sections. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Everybody yeah. discovered that at some point when they were a young brass player and, and got really excited about it. And then, you know, listen to the, the Empire Brass version and the Canadian Brass version. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and they're That's awesome. Cool. The, the playing is just incredible. But I made the mistake of, of telling my dad, hey, go get me more Gabrielli CDs. <laughs> and, and he got me some that were played on original instruments. The Hesperian 20 had one that I had, and uh, Gabrielli Consort had one that I had. And when I listened to those, it was just completely different music. And, and I really got excited about that on, on those instruments. Not only just the instruments, but the way of playing those instruments and the style of playing those instruments. It was really special to me. And now, you know, I, I, I can go back and I can listen to the Empire Brass recording. And it's, it's fantastic playing, but it doesn't get me excited. And, and, and when I go back and I listen to a, a fantastic early music group like Concerto Palatino playing that same music, that is, is really, really exciting. And, and part of that is the fact that, that you know, the modern instruments are, are designed to work in a giant orchestra and they're not designed to work, you know, in a, in a, in a chamber setting like that. And, and they just don't have the sensitivity and, and the way the timbres work. It, it's, it's very, very different. So um, I got really interested in that. And then I purchased, uh, you know, at the time, as a young professional, when, when I was just getting my career started, I couldn't afford really expensive instruments like like fancy German or Swiss sack butts. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, a sack butt is, is basically a word. It's a word that they used back in the 17th and 16th centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, but these days, we kind of use sack butt to, 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 to denote that this is an early trombone that we're talking about and not a modern trombone. So I couldn't afford a sack butt, so I went and, and got a cornetto. And... There's a company uh, called Christopher Monk Instruments in, in England that makes plastic cornettos. They're, they're the company that kind of started making um, uh, the first reproduction cornettos in the 20th century. When were they producing those instruments? What, what time think, period was this kind of? Well, they still make them, but I think they started doing those in the 1960s. Okay. That, that's kind of when the whole rebirth of, of, uh, of a lot of this early music happened. I didn't know plastic brass instruments were, were being made that early on. I thought that that was a relatively new thing that was being done. Well, of course, a, a, a cornetto, as a friend of mine likes to say, is, is a platypus, right? So we're not talking about the cornet. We're talking about the cornetto, mm -hmm. which is, is, is kind of like a recorder. It's made out of wood. It's covered in leather, and it's got finger holes like a recorder. The, yeah, the fingering system's a little bit different because like, it, it doesn't overblow with the octave. It's, it's kind of very acoustically messed up. Mm -hmm. But... Um, if you hear one of the people who are really great at playing them, they're, they're amazing. So, hmm. uh, so a, a plastic cornetto is, is closer 
to like a plastic clarinet in how it's it's gotcha, gotcha. it's built rather than 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 the way of like a plastic trombone is made or a plastic trumpet is made. Mm-hmm. Um, so this really doesn't have anything to do with American brass bands, but it was kind of my my uh, my point of entry into the um, into the world of of hip, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I made the mistake of taking this plastic cornetto to uh, orchestra rehearsal one day that I was going to be a little early for, and and just pulled it out in the church and was playing a little bit. And the tuba player in the orchestra heard me. And the tuba player in the orchestra was Bob Planch. And I don't know if you guys know Bob Planch. Um, he's he's kind of a central figure in in the early American brass band because he was one of the one of the first people who was doing repair work on these instruments and things like mm-hmm. that. He just recently retired, I think, from instrument repair, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, Bob, amazing guy, super nice guy, um, was actually my dad's seatmate in the Army Field Band in the 1950s on their tour bus. Nice. So before my dad was in the NSO, he was in the in the field band, and then I think Bob went into the Pershing Zone after he was in the field band, mm-hmm. um, and was a fantastic tuba player, and uh, you know also subbed with the NSO a lot and, and that sort of thing. So um, you know Bob played in all those community orchestras at the time, and and he saw me playing this cornetto and said, "Oh hey, I have this early music group I play with because he plays Serpent. Um, why don't you come play with us?" And and so I got on the phone with the woman who ran that group, and she said, oh, do you play recorder? And I remembered back to second grade and said, why, yes, I do. I do play recorder. <laughs> so I ordered a nice wooden recorder and started practicing on that. And that was yeah. that was a fun group to play with. But, you know, I, I kind of got to know Bob mm-hmm. better than I had known him. And uh, and he said, well, gee, I have this quinticlave. Um, do you want to borrow it? And then you can come play with us on quinticlave. And if you don't know what a quinticlave, is it is an alto ophicline. It's in, in E flat or F, although I've never seen an F. Um, all the ones I've seen are E flat. But it's it's probably one of the most rare brass instruments you could possibly uh, look for. Hmm. I've seen maybe two of them for sale my entire life. I've seen you know available for sale. So yeah, well. I've seen more sudraphones for sale than I have seen quinticlaves for sale. Yeah. You know, and um, so he lent me this beautiful instrument, and we would have a, a quartet. We play now bob would play bass off a of clyde and i would play uh, quinticlave and bob had a friend who had a e-flat keyed bugle and a b-flat keyed, keyed bugle so we nice. went through a few different uh, uh people who were playing the b-flat keyed bugle mm-hmm. we were just sort of trying to figure out how to play these instruments especially the the, the keyed bugle players because that's not an easy instrument to play yeah, yeah. and that's not a particularly historic ensemble either you you don't find much music that was for you know, a quartet of keyed instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we just arranged whatever we could find and or, or put choral scores in front of us and, and did the transposition or, or mm-hmm. whatever, just to have something to play. And it was fun. But I really took to this this quinticlave and, and I really enjoyed playing it. And I got really good at it. So, so would you say that, that quinticlave was then your first, like, gateway into actually playing a, a historical brass, specific brass instrument? Well, cornetto is a brass instrument, but it's not—it's not sort of a, one of the traditional. You know, quinticlave was my first gateway in playing into playing a um, a brass brass instrument. Yeah, yeah, right. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, brass instrument means lip reed, right? Most of them are made of brass, but it doesn't necessarily mean they have to be made of brass. Mm-hmm. So yeah, from there, I I met uh, the people who were at that point running the Washington Cornet and Sackbut Ensemble. Uh, Michael Holmes is a fantastic musician, 
sack player, cornetto player, plays plays everything really. I think he's a, originally a horn player. And um, you know, as we know from your previous episodes, Michael O'Connor founded the Washington Cornet and Sackbutt Ensemble. And he, when he moved out of the DC area, uh, he kind of left that group in the hands of Michael Holmes. So I started going to their concerts and kind of just sort of hanging around and and uh, you know saying, oh yeah, I play cornetto too. And and lo and behold, one day they actually let me play in a concert. <laughs> and nice. and uh, Probably one of the most terrifying things I've ever done is play cornetto in, in in a concert with people in front of me because as a as a low brass player that is a very very difficult instrument to play. You know, I mm-hmm. I could make it sound decent if I practiced it alone for about two weeks straight, <laughs> and then I do you know one day doing something else, and then and then it's all gone. I got to yeah, start yeah, over yeah. again. <laughs> um, so I started hanging out with them. And eventually I went and, and bought my own sack butts and, and became a regular member of that group. And, and that's something I really enjoy. It's a, a fantastic uh, uh, group. So that was kind of my um, main entry into the world of early brass. But then uh, Michael Holmes, who was the director of the Washington Cornet and Sack Butt Ensemble, said, oh, hey, you play valves, right? And I said, yeah, started on euphonium. And he said, I'm going to introduce you to my friend Mike O'Connor, uh, who's got this group, Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band. Um, they need somebody. And so I, uh, you know, I talked to Mike O'Connor and he said, you know, we're, we're going to the Vintage Band Festival in, in Minnesota and we're going to play as Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band and we want you to play tenor horn. For people who are familiar with your podcast, they know that uh, tenor horn is a B-flat nine-foot instrument. Um, in modern parlance, you know, the British nomenclature tenor horn is an E-flat instrument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what we call alto horn in the U.S., and so we went and, and did several days of rehearsing and then went to the Vintage Band Festival in Northfield, Minnesota and, and played as Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band. And, and I just loved it. It was fantastic. The, the music is really, really cool. The instruments are fun to play. And so then I was, uh, I was a member of, of, of the Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band from that point forward, I guess. And you were featured as a soloist on their first recording, right? It, what what was your what were you playing sure um well it's a it's an opera aria from uh franz von Suppe from an opera called uh, fatanitza <laughs> and uh from what i can gather the opera is about a russian soldier who dresses up like a woman and then the general falls in love with him and and All right. you know okay <laughs> there's a big love triangle from there and everything like that <laughs> and uh the name of the of the piece is um, My Native Land. And I think I went to uh, IMDB or IMSLP and uh, tried to figure out uh, where in the opera this falls and, and what's happening. And I couldn't find it. It's not in the score for the opera. So I think it might have been one of those numbers that was inserted into the opera at, at some point later. Mm-hmm. Um, it. Michael got the uh, got the music from the Library of Congress. There's a there's a band arrangement there, and there's also a piano arrangement of it. Okay. And and it quite clearly on the on the on the music that's in the Library of Congress says you know from the opera Fatnitsa, uh Franz von Suppe, but it's 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 not in in the score for the opera. Um, so you know it's it's basically one of the characters singing about his home, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, the tune has also been used uh, as sort of a patriotic song in Austria. It's called Odu Mein Österreich. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a slow tune. And so I, I added a, a few little ornaments here and there. But um, uh, you were playing it as a, as a vocal 
like off of a vocal score of it, or this was written? No, out it's a and- it's a band arrangement that 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 uh, Michael got from the Library of Congress. So it 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 was a, a you know a nineteenth century band arrangement that that they actually played back then. Awesome. And um and so it it was an actual baritone solo, and so I'm playing that on the on the 1900 Boston baritone that that I got from Michael, who got it from Eric Topman, <laughs> and uh, subsequently put thousands and thousands of dollars into making it like a new <laughs> instrument. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a beautiful little piece, and and um, you know I'm I'm trying to to impart upon it some of the, those 19th century ideas about phrasing and, and things like that. But mostly I'm going, please don't make these G's be too flat. Like we mentioned, those, those 19th century instruments, they're lovely playing instruments. They, they, they're really sweet in ways that modern instruments can't be. But the intonation is the one thing that they really quite, hadn't quite figured out yet. Yeah. 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 Um, and and so it's a it's a really neat little piece. Now most of that album is is music from Thomas Coates, who you mm-hmm. talked to Michael about, who's a really cool composer. But that's that's a nice little interlude on that on that CD of of, of just some some beautiful music. And and the band, of course, everybody in that band is fantastic. They did a great job with it. So I'm I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to do it. chance to play that solo in a live performance by any chance yeah so uh we recorded that cd at a church in um alexandria virginia and uh you know we kind of took over the church for a week and set up all the microphones and they had a fantastic producer and engineer come in and and help with that um and as kind of a, a thanks to the church uh we we played the whole program uh live for them at the end of the week for the members of the church there. So, and that's on YouTube actually, uh, oh, Elisa, cool. Elisa Kohler, who is, is now the conductor of Newbury's Victorian cornet band um, mm-hmm. for that project was the solo cornet player. She, she videoed all those and that, that entire concerts on, on YouTube in, in, in one form or another. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and at the, at the more recent um, 
Vintage Band Festival, Michael asked me to play a solo again, and I did a, a, a solo called the Young America Polka, um, and was just all triple tonguing. And I mentioned before how, you know, one of the things I enjoy is 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 growing as a player and just learning the stuff that that I'm not good at. Mm. And, you know, I've always had trouble with articulation, so so he sent me a few scores and said, you know, which of these are you interested in doing? I looked at the one that that. I can't possibly do this because it's it's <laughs> it's triple tonguing at super fast speeds for for two minutes straight, and I said that's going to be the one. Let's do that yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Like I said, it's amazing how that practice thing actually works. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who would have thought? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So um, the mighty native land, though. Uh, funny enough, there's a there's an album from 1974 that the wind section of the Berlin Philharmonic did of 19th century Prussian and Austrian marches. And, um, it's, it's a famous album. It's a, a double CD now. Uh, but I was listening to that and like the second track on that is, is that tune made into a march. Oh, well. So, you know, nice. like I said, it's, it's that it's, it's been sort of made into a, a patriotic song in Austria. Mm-hmm. And and so there's a there's a march, you know, rather than it's so I I kind of put that on when I got that. I was like, wait a second, I know that song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. That's really cool. Had you heard any type of that any of that type of music uh, before sitting in with them for the first time? You know, I don't think so. Um, like I said, I I was never a big band music person i was always i was always more interested in orchestra yeah and it seems like up until the time you started playing with the newberry uh group you were kind of on the earlier side as yeah, far as I, the the repertoire goes I, absolutely yes yeah. so o'connor kind of pushed you back about 200 years into <laughs> <laughs> your brass playing yeah. yeah well you know um historically informed performance has has long been sort of baroque music and renaissance music mm-hmm and especially in Europe, more recently, people are starting to get into classical and romantic music and on, on original instruments. And it, it really is something special. There's not a whole lot of it happening in the U.S. Um, I, was, I was lucky enough to play in a group based on Mike O'Connor's recommendation. He recommended me uh, in Boston. There was an orchestra called Grand Harmony, which was doing, you know, um, romantic orchestra stuff on 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 period instruments and and they had me up to play off a Clyde uh doing the the whole Mendelssohn Midsummer Night's Dream suite and and that was that was really really cool it's a little bit unnerving playing um off a Clyde in an orchestra like that because you have all these all these string players who are all Juilliard people and have beautiful instruments and all these wind players who who are just amazing and 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 can make the most beautiful sounds out of your instrument and there I am honking along on off applied, <laughs> making making burp noises, you know. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but but that's what the instrument is. It was it was meant to be like that. It's it's meant to add a little bit of edge and a little bit of buzz to that orchestra, and it really works. And that's what you're missing when 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 you play that repertoire on tuba or or, or euphonium, as is sometimes done. Um, it 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 just doesn't have that buzziness that 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 the composers knew what they were getting when they wrote that stuff. So so that's a lot of fun. My fiance a flute player and her mother would probably 100% agree that the brass instruments are adding burping noises into a beautiful <laughs> sound in an orchestra. That was yeah. very, uh, very accurate to what, uh, what I think they would say as well. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Now 
the, the reason why we, we use the term historically informed these days is because we don't know exactly what it sounded like, right? We, this is the domain of musicologists who, who go back and read the, the, the treatises in the original Italian and, and, and try to figure out, you know, what, what these, these players did and how it worked. But you can learn a lot just from the instruments, you know? So if you have an instrument that's an original 19th century instrument, if you have an instrument that's, that's, uh, that's patterned very closely after an original 17th century trombone, just the way it plays can tell you a lot about the way the players would have used it. You know, there, there are certain things that work and there are certain things that don't work. And, and the instrument kind of tells you how it wants to be played. Going yeah. back to uh, when you were playing in Michael O'Connor's group with Newberry uh, for the first time, you were saying how you had only recently, I guess, begun acquiring like sackbuts around that time. So when you were playing with Newberry, were you borrowing an instrument from O'Connor or did you go out and get an instrument just for, for that uh, ensemble also? Yeah. So um, the first time I played with Newberry's, I, I played uh, tenor horn and um, Michael supplied me with, uh, with a champion silver piston B flat tenor horn hmm. and champion silver piston was uh, basically an imprint of Lion and Healy in Chicago. Of course, Lion and Healy makes harps and things like that still today but at the time they were a big music store and they bought instruments from you know from what today would be the Czech Republic yeah, and yeah. and uh, and and put their name on it and so he has he has one of those and i find that the earlier instruments are better playing instruments than the late 19th century instruments they they kind of lost something when they started switching over to you know piston valve instruments at the at the end of the 19th century but but it was a fun instrument to play and you know, if you just pick it up and try to play it like a, a modern euphonium or something like that, it's going to sound terrible. Mm. But but the instrument has something to teach you. And if you if you if you sit down with it and try to figure out how it works, you can actually make it sound really cool. But yeah, uh, so I, I borrowed that instrument and I arrived and I played that. And we had a great time. And there's that was the 2010 Vintage Band Festival in Northfield, Minnesota. But a gentleman named Paul Nemisto set up this vintage band festival and basically bands from all over the world come in. And the vintage part is, is partly that, uh, you know, the festival is kind of an old time festival and they have modern concert bands and, and brass bands. And there's a modern brass quintet that's sort of in residence there every time. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of bands that are doing the, the reenactment thing. You know, the, the, the Dodworth Saxhorn band has been there out of Michigan and the first brigade band from Wisconsin and of course, uh, Federal City Brass Band has has been there, uh, and the Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band I think has been every time they've had one of the big every three year uh, mm -hmm. vintage band festivals, and it's it's a really really cool event. Um, and Northfield, Minnesota is is a very 19th century kind of town. Hmm. Um, Northfield, there's there's two colleges there, um, and I don't even remember the names of them. I'm, I'm sure somebody could figure it out quite easily. But yeah. uh, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a college town, but it also is, is, is like little small town America, perfect, uh, you know, encapsulation of, of, that, of that Midwestern 19th century town. Yeah. And actually Northfield is famous because in the 18, I think late 1860s, uh, Jesse James came and tried to rob the bank there. And and failed. I think the bank teller said no, <laughs> and and they didn't know what to do, and um, some shooting happened, and that was kind of the beginning of the end for the for the James gang, 
right? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they all split up and, and, uh, and some of his gang was captured. I think it took a few more years before Jesse James himself was captured, but, but it, it's, and I'm not a huge history nerd or anything like that, but it's, it's so romantic. This, this, you know, this little town where all these things happened in the 1870s and, and yeah. 1860s and, and the buildings are all the same. And now, you know, now it might be a frozen yogurt shop or whatever, but <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. you know, the, this is the, this is that old 19th century building. And it's, it's, it's really, really cool. So it's, it's neat to be there for a few days and, and, and put on something that approximates what they would have worn and, get in a big circle in the park and, and, and play the music, it, you know, the way that a, a band concert would have happened in, in the 19th century. Yeah, right. for sure. It, that applies to both that, that town in Minnesota, but then also the civil war brass bands playing like in the field in reenactments and stuff. We were referencing Michael O'Connor a lot in this episode, but in his yeah. episode, he was referring, uh, talking about when he was playing with, uh, uh, I think it was the, the 26th impression. Uh, as opposed to Federal City, but they were out in the field playing and saying how reenactors were coming over and saying how much more authentic they've made the experience of reenacting, I think, Gettysburg that time. So, yeah, yeah just absolutely. being ha having the instruments, the uniforms, and then being, you know, where it happened kind of thing, similar to what you're talking about in Minnesota, you know, it adds a lot. It does. Now, I, I'm not big into the reenacting thing. I went and bought the the uniform, and I, I, I got a nice one because I wanted to do it right, and that's who I am. But mm -hmm. um, but I I don't like camping. I don't like being outside. I certainly don't like being outside in the summer in in a wool dress. You know, dress. Oh, yeah. it, it's rough. And, and <laughs> it, it bugs and the food and and you know I I need a certain level of privacy with the bathroom. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there you uh, go. all those things that that's not for me so you know I, i'll do civil war events where it's it's you know a ceremony at, at the you know in the middle of downtown rockville or something like that but yeah, yeah. um but i'm not so into let's go camp at uh, appomattox for three days and and yeah. uh, and live in a tent that's uh I, you know no <laughs> that's not for me i i like the music the history is exciting to me but it's not that exciting yeah, so that's, an that's another draw then to the post Civil War brass bands. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So you've played with Newberries. Have you? Were you involved with uh, Michael O'Connor's Civil War band, the the Coates Brass Band, as well? Yeah. So I'm I'm on that record. So I think we did that that Coates Brass Band record in 2011. If I'm remembering correctly. We did that shortly after the the first Vintage Band Festival, mm -hmm. and um and you know. While the first time I played with Newberries, I played tenor. Um, Mike kind of came to me and said, "Hey, you're you're pretty good. Um, let's upgrade you to, to baritone, and and you and I can kind of switch off and and play, you know, baritone and B flat bass. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, if, if you don't know, B flat bass is kind of like uh, the tuba part, the E flat bass part. Um, so the B flat bass part is usually not all that exciting, and the baritone part is really exciting, right? Mm -hmm. That's the that's the lower solo instrument. Yeah." So, so uh, Michael and I would um, would switch off. Mm -hmm. the, if you look at the manufacturers' catalogs for for instruments, um, they did sell a separate B flat bass and baritone, but it's debatable how much different those instruments actually were. Yeah. And and sometimes the pictures in catalogs are are a little bit uh, misleading, and and. I think the general thought is B flat bass and and baritone, aka what became euphonium, um, is really the same instrument. 
Mm-hmm. And later on, you see there are some B-flat basses that have really, really big bells, like even bigger than a modern euphonium. But but I think in the 1860s and, and 1870s, you know, maybe the B-flat bass player had a fourth valve, but maybe not. It mm. wasn't, a big, wasn't a big deal if he didn't. And, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> maybe they left out the baritone part altogether and, and or or it depended on the chart and they went to whatever they wanted to play. So was uh, Michael O'Connor's two groups the extent of your, not that that's not significant, like sufficient, but is that the extent of your uh, early American brass band involvement and experience playing in those two groups? Well, um, Yari Villanueva, who you had on, has also called me on occasion uh, to, to come in and play with the, the, the Federal City Brass Band and the, and the 26th North Carolina mm-hmm. uh, group. So I, I've done that a few times. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm kind of a regular member of his band. Gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. So cool. the the first uh, time you play with Newberries, you borrowed the horn from uh, Michael O'Connor. At what point did you start kind of amassing your mid to late nineteenth century uh, arsenal of brass instruments? <laughs> yeah, these instruments are not easy to find. Mm-hmm. They 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 don't show up every day on eBay. There's a lot more cornets than there are baritones and oh, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, and and tubas and. You know, I, I have a theory about that too. You know, there were a lot of like um, brass drives for World War One and World War Two to make cartridge brass, and and I think a lot of these instruments just sort of ended up in the dumpster because they were, you know, they were big, they took up a lot of space, and and the cornets, you know, Grandpa's cornet was easier to leave in the closet, um, <laughs> just because it took up less space, and mm-hmm. and and the larger instruments, there are just so many fewer of them around. What I figured out was that the 1870s instruments are practically the same instruments as the 1860s instruments. Mm-hmm. And they're a lot cheaper just because, um, you know, nobody's, uh, nobody's carrying it around saying, this was played at Antietam or anything yeah, like yeah, that. You know? yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so, so I started finding a few of the 1870s instruments. And uh, I think the first one I bought was uh, a Boston tenor horn. Actually, I, I, I had bought a, a Pepper from 1870s, a, a Pepper baritone, and I traded that with Michael O'Connor after the 2013 Vintage Band Festival. So we mm-hmm. did the, the we did the 2013 Vintage Band Festival, and for that I used a uh, uh, Henry Diston Philadelphia uh, baritone that belonged to Steve Lundahl. Um, I had this Pepper, and I had it with me, but it was a little earlier because Newberries is, is sort of nominally a – we play stuff – in Newberry's from the end of the civil war up to the advent of the civil uh, of the uh, Sousa band. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the tagline end of the civil war to the advent of the Sousa band. So 1882. Then. Right. 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 Yeah. But, um, but really it's, it's an 1880s kind of band. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so that 1870s pepper baritone I, I had, I had bought wasn't quite the right instrument. So I was using this, uh, this distant baritone, uh, gorgeous instrument, funny, Funny story about that too, though. Uh, Steve Lundahl, fantastic trombone player, multi instrumentalist, has has a, has a beautiful collection, including some Adolf Sax uh, instruments. Um, let me use this instrument, but he's he's a trombone player and doesn't really understand the care of valve instruments. <laughs> so I'm staying uh, with my dad, who played clarinet in in Newberry's Victorian Cornet Band in in this dorm room in the college in in Northfield, Minnesota, and you know we just played a thing, and I I. I'd done a solo in that concert and I said, you know what? The valves on this are terrible. I need to take this apart and do the full clean out. And I started cleaning it out 
and uh, and scrubbing out the valves and everything like that. And these cork, um, you know, we used felts in brass instruments these days to space out and, and mm-hmm. kind of provide damping so that you don't just get metal on metal sounds when you when you're when you're using the valves. Right. These original corks from the 19th century just started falling apart as I'm as I'm <laughs> trying to wash these pistons. Now I'm being extremely gentle and stuff like that, but these have been in there for for well over 100 years, and and they just weren't having it anymore. Yeah. So I I had to improvise and and make new felts out of uh, out of little bits of uh, college towels uh, <laughs> to, to, to make the instrument work. And and luckily, a little bit later that week, there was a, a brass repair person who was kind of hanging out. And I said, do you have any felts? And we, we kind of looked at the instrument and figured out what it needed exactly in terms nice. of, of spacing and, and put some modern felts in there. But that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you got to be careful. With those They're fracking, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I totally got off on a tangent there, but, um, what I was saying was I, after the vintage band festival was over, uh, Mike O'Connor looked at this, uh, pepper baritone that I had and said, you know, that, that instrument is, is not a bad civil war instrument. It's 1870s, but it's, it's, it's got that very tall bell stack and it's, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's not out of place. I don't have one like that. Do you want to trade? And, and, um, Michael had this, um, Boston baritone that he'd been playing um, that I really liked. I had tried a few times and it was, was in, in those times where, where we didn't uh, think twice about handing brass instruments back and forth and, and, uh, and sharing viruses. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I tried it and I really liked it. So, um, so I said, sure. And so I traded and I think Michael got that instrument from Eric Topman. So uh, it's, it's um, that was kind of the first instrument that I really liked that I, 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 I owned myself was was that Boston baritone, which is is really shaped very much like a modern euphonium. You know, it's it's three nice. valve instrument, but it's 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 a piston instrument. It's it's got that kind of squat shape that the modern euphonium has. It's a little bit smaller bell, but it for all intents and purposes, it's a, it's a modern euphonium. Yeah. And that that's got a serial number on it. That one and that one was made in 1900, so it's a okay. little bit. It's a little bit later, but it's the same instrument they were making in the 1880s. It's gotcha. you know, it appears in their 1880s catalog, right? So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so not updating it a whole lot, <laughs> right? There's which was kind of the downfall of Boston is, is they didn't update anything. I can I can go into Boston if you want to talk about Boston because I, I kind of like them. Um, okay. So that you know that was kind of the first one I got, and um, I, I kind of said these Boston instruments are really cool. I like them. And and so I started buying more of those. I I, I created a saved search on eBay, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and and whenever a Boston instrument would come up, I I would buy that. So I I have several now. I've got a Boston tenor, and I've got a Boston rotary valve baritone from the 1870s that is being restored right now. And I got um, more recently got a tuba, a, a nickel silver Boston rotary valve tuba from the 1870s that I haven't had restored yet. And and is is playable now but will be a lot better once it gets restored mm-hmm. um and i got a, a couple of boston trombones i got a valve trombone and and uh and a slide trombone and and i i started doing something i hate which was indulging in in collector behavior and 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 getting those just because i you know it it worked for me and i and i like that um yeah, yeah. And, and they're really really nice, nice instruments so, so so your focus is definitely boston but uh what what's up with the uh the the stigma 
with, uh, <laughs> with the term collector? Why, why don't you ca characterize yourself as a, a Boston instrument collector? Well, let me put it this way. And, and nothing against people who are collectors and, yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. and enjoy that. But, um, you know, we, we, we have a mutual friend um, who's an awesome, cool guy who has probably, um, well, let me put it this way. You can count on one hand the number of E-flat keyed bugles that this, this particular gentleman doesn't own that are, that are still existing, right? He's got so many of them that, that, that he's got more than all the museums put together. And um, that's, that's collector behavior. He doesn't really play these instruments, but he gets them. And, and he prizes the instruments that, that have uh, provenance with them, right? He knows who mm -hmm. played them. He's got pictures of them in the 19th century or, or, um, or their presentation instruments. You know what a presentation instrument is? Yeah, when it was yeah. Uh, engraved and given to somebody for a special occasion. Exactly. The bandmaster of this town retires and, and everybody chips in and puts puts together to order the fanciest instrument out of the catalog engraved with a special message to him or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And, and th those are really cool and they tend to be really good instruments because when they did something like that, they, they didn't get the cheap one. They got the good yeah, one. Yeah, they got, had it mm -hmm. engraved, right? Yeah. But I don't have any special interest in the history or... You know, I, I wouldn't go out and buy a Boston cornet or a Boston alto just because I have some other Boston instruments and I want to have the complete set. Hmm. Um, I don't play those instruments. And when I buy instruments, I buy them because I want them to give me uh, opportunities to play. Yeah, true. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I will admit that what I have is a collection. But I, but I always kind of bristle. He said it. He said yeah. it. <laughs> you heard it here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always kind of bristle a little bit when somebody calls me a collector because um, because collectors have certain behaviors they do that that are are awesome things and it's it's really cool that they do that. But that's that's not me. Mm -hmm. um, when I buy an instrument, I want to get it because one, I have a gig for it, or two, um, I want to be prepared when the gig for it comes up. Uh, it's not that, you know, look at this amazing piece of history or, or I, I have the rest of the set, so I, I might as well get this one. Mm -hmm. um, while, we're, uh, sorry, while we're talking about instruments, I was wondering if you had a favorite in your arsenal. Yeah, I was going to say arsenal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll refrain from using the word collection, but do, do you have a favorite in the, in the group of horns that you own? No. No, I don't. Good do, you have one that you do you have one that you prefer playing on if you had a a gig where you had multiple options of what you could use for that particular gig, I guess like time period wise or something. Do you have a go-to? No, no, I, I, what, I what's really another don't. way I can phrase the questions. So you uh, give us an answer. <laughs> well, I have instruments. I have some that are better players than others. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's more fun to play something that plays better than it is to play something that is really out of tune or, or, or something like that. I kind of enjoy the challenge of of something that I haven't put a whole lot of work into yet, and and oh, this gig's coming up, and and uh, boy, you haven't played baritone saxhorn in 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 years, hmm. so here's a great opportunity to to put in some time, and you know what, that that practice thing that everyone talks about really works, and and it's amazing. <laughs> it always it never ceases to amaze me that when you when you sit down and do methodical work with those instruments, you can get really really good with them. Um, <laughs> Even if it's a, a, a instrument from the 19th century that just doesn't play as well as a modern instrument, you know, it, you, mm -hmm. you can get really, really, really good. So I, I kind of enjoy the opportunities to have a challenge, something that I haven't done before or something that I'm not as good at and, and, and want to get good at. 
Um, it always feels a little bit dangerous to me. Like you're going into this orchestra situation and you really don't know these alpha Clyde fingerings that well. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting to me, you know, yeah, yeah. where, where, you know, you put in all this practice, but there's, there's still this little bit of edge there where, where anything could happen. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's not healthy, but it, <laughs> it, it's fun. You know, yeah. something that, something that you mentioned about the practice is, is kind of interesting while I'm doing reading, you know, about all these different bands and different virtuoso players and stuff, they refer to, you know, especially different cornet players, key bugle players as being virtuosos and being able to play anything on the instrument. And then, like, kind of, I don't know, it might be a bad admission, but kind of in the back of my mind, kind of like, yeah, the instrument was around for five years, like, yeah, virtuoso, mm -hmm. but like in, in quotes, you know, like, what does that really mean? But yeah, it, then it's exactly what you're saying. Once you get your hands on these things, you know, you're able to see, you know, what the instrument can do, how good you can get at it by practicing. And yeah, that's, it's not an exaggeration. Well, maybe to a certain extent, they're not, we're not for sure. Not, uh, well, I mean, my, like I said, I'm not a musicologist. I, I haven't done a doctorate in, in this or anything, but I keep my ear to the ground. And in some cases, you need to do some reading because you want to figure out what the right tool for the job is, right? You need to go and go to some primary sources to, just to figure out what instrument to show up at the gig with. But my sense is that these people in the 19th century were actually quite good players. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we, we have this sense that, oh, you know, this music, for the most part, is very simple. And, and, but I think that they really cared and, and they really did a good job with, with performing this music. Um, now, there's an asterisk on that, because if you go back and you look at, you know, a recording of the New York Philharmonic from the 1960s, it's, it's not to the same standard as today's music, right? So, you know, they, they had instruments where the acoustics weren't really well understood, so there were intonation problems. But other than that, the instruments played really well. And I think they did their best to work against those problems, but I think they probably were, were excellent musicians. They knew what they were doing. Um, they even the guys who were you know members of the town band and that was their only exposure they didn't they didn't go to new york city and study to become an amazing sax horn player their their father handed them the instrument and said here come to band practice with me but but tailors and blacksmiths and stuff. exactly but <laughs> yeah. I, the sense i get is that they cared and and um that they put a lot of pride into the level of craftsmanship with what they could do with their with their instrument you know mm -hmm. and um and that they probably were quite good. Your kind of philosophy is, you know, if I'm going to acquire an instrument, it's going to be because I want to play it. You know, I want to have an opportunity to play it and breathe some music through one that maybe hasn't been used um, quite recently. But then there are also these great museums of instruments that serve as a resource. Um, and you've visited a few of these, right? Oh, yeah, um, more than a few. <laughs> um, so my wife loves to travel. Uh, so I do that with her. And, um, you know, I, I realized early on that while we're doing this traveling, I could go and visit the, you know, the modern instrument makers and, and, and see what they're doing and see how the instruments are made. Mm -hmm. And, and I kind of got really into just, you know, seeing how instruments are made and, and, you know, how that craftsmanship is done and, and the tools and techniques they use. And, you know, I, I, I've basically been to all the big brass instrument factories um, around the world. I mean, not like, not like the, the really big ones in China these days, but I've been to, to you know, the, the 
the, the big legacy manufacturers in Europe and and the ones in Elkhart and 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 you know, all, all those manufacturers and seeing how they do it. It's just fun sort of um, seeing how these things are put together. And as an extension of that, I started looking at the old instruments in museums and, and you know, something that Adolf Sachs worked on himself and, and, and just looking at all the little details and the things that you can't see in a picture in a book or, or on a website. You know, if, mm-hmm. if, if you stick your head up to the display case and you're six inches away from this, there are all these little details and, and they're so beautifully made. Um, so it, it's a lot of fun to do that. What are some of the, the international museums that you've visited? Well, um, the Musical Instrument Museum in Brussels, I've been to several times. And, and, uh, and recently, I got a little bit of a, uh, a behind-the-scenes tour there. Yeah, I saw um, you posting pictures on Facebook about that. Could you, could you share that experience and maybe how that came about a little bit? Sure. If, if you're allowed. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, well, they don't just let anybody in uh, to, to the you know, behind the scenes at those museums. So definitely they wouldn't let me in, but, um, but I was hanging out with somebody who had, who had legitimate research he was doing there. Um, Mm -hmm. I play, I mentioned the orchestra grand harmony that, that I had the opportunity to play off of Clyde in, uh, and, and Serpent in their, in their brass ensemble. And, um, there's a, a newer group, uh, called the Teatro Nuovo, which is a lot of the people from Grand Harmony, but it's it's run by an amazing conductor uh, named Will Crutchfield, who really understands. He's gone back and listened to a lot of the recordings of of uh, of nineteenth century opera, um, you know, the very early recordings, and figured out how they do this opera singing. So this group is. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to be asked to be to play in this opera orchestra, and um, you know, a year before last we did. Uh, opera called Medea in Corinto by by Meyer and I got to play Serpent on that and you know it was it was made clear that I'd be asked back the next year and we're not quite sure what the repertoire is yet so um, you know just have the right instruments and well you know 19th century Italian opera there's a lot of different instruments that 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 you could use mm-hmm. and and so I kind of said well gee if you get the email that we're going to do this opera this summer and, and you know, you're just starting to look for the right instrument to do that at that point, that's going to be too late, right? Because Mm -hmm. it takes time for somebody to make an instrument um, or, you know, these things might come up on eBay or an auction house or something like that once every few years. So, so you have to be prepared with the right instrument for the job. So I, I figured out that for, a lot of, uh, of Italian opera, I was going to need a bass horn. Mm. And the bass horn is kind of the missing link between a serpent and an ophicleide. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more of a serpent. It's, it's made of wood, but it's got some metal parts. It's got, it's got like a metal bell on it. And, you know, it's got, it's got finger holes and, and maybe a few keys. Uh, but it's, it's shaped more like an ophicleide. It's got that bassoon shape. It's, it's made more like a bassoon. It's like you know, an upright serpent. It, exactly, exactly. And there are a lot of different names for, for, for bass horns in the 19th century. Um, and there was a lot of different stuff tried. You know, the 19th century was like this big laboratory for, for brass yeah. instrument uh, <laughs> experimentation. And there were so, and this is one of the other things that's fun about going to museums is there were so, so many different things they tried and, and abandoned. And, and a lot of them are really quite strange. Hmm. Um, that it's just neat to see them and, 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 and look at how they did things. Mm-hmm. So um, my luthier, 
who I had make a bass horn for me is, is Pierre Rebo, who's one of the, the best serpent makers uh, currently. He is probably the only person at the moment who can make you a bass horn. So if you can't find an original or you don't want to deal with an original and, and, uh, and you know, patching up all the rotting wood and, <laughs> and, and, and all that with that plague, some of those originals, um, he's, he's the guy that can make you one. So I, I sent him an email and said, you know, I, I'd like you to make me a bass horn. And then he finished it several months later. Actually, I think it was over a year later. And, and said, okay, how do you want to ship this? And I said, well, the easiest thing might be just for me to come to Belgium, because he's in Brussels, mm-hmm. and, and pick it up. And he said, great, I'll make you a case. <laughs> and um, so I showed up uh, just this past February in, in Brussels, and he said, oh, well, I've got some business at the Musical Instrument Museum, and, and that's probably one of the best musical instrument museums in the world, one in Brussels. And uh, would you like to come along with me and, and, and check it out? So he was measuring some original bass horns there nice. uh, that they have because he's you know wants to refine his design and make it even better. And if you've got legitimate research business, then museums tend to like let you in to, to, to look at these things and maybe even play a note or two on them. Usually not, but some, sometimes, <laughs> you know. So... Uh, it's, it was absolutely amazing. The, the Museum of Brussels probably has more instruments in the storage room in the back than they actually have on display. Yeah. And, and, you know, they've got some of the, the Adolf Sachs, seven belled uh, sax horns and, and that sort of thing. Sachs was a craftsman and he had a small little shop and, and hmm. he, he turned them out. But, um, but there were big factories too, companies like Gautreau and, and, and things yeah, like that, yeah. which could make a lot more instruments than he could and, and, and started doing it. And I, I think Sachs was annoyed that, uh, hey, these are my patents, even though maybe he, he, he didn't do all that much as far as um, innovating. <laughs> it's it still, mm-hmm. that, that, yeah, yeah. that rubbed him the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And so um, the later Saxhorns, you know, the, the Saxhorn Nouveau, um, you know, the, he started doing the, the bell front thing, you know, kind of like the, the 20th century Belfront American baritones, the recording tubas and things like yeah, that. Yeah. And, um, and he started doing things with this six valve system that persisted on, on French quote unquote sax horns into the 20th century and things like the French tuba. Mm-hmm. And he started, uh, um, you know, putting a, a tuning slide in the lead pipe, which, which was completely contradictory to his original thought of making a lead pipe that was straight and as short as possible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, my thought is, and it's, it's fun to try to get in these guys' heads and figure out what they were thinking. And I might be completely wrong, but, um, but you know, you, to me. <laughs> you, you read enough about it, you kind of get a sense for, for who they were and what they were trying to do. And mm-hmm. um, so nobody go and write any, anything official based on my thoughts or anything like that. But no, it, it's all, it all, it makes logical sense. And it's, it's well, and you can get in trouble that way because, because, you know, sometimes you try to put a, a easy convenient button on something and say, this must've been what happened. Yeah, and then, too. and then, and then later on you figure out that that reality was, was quite a bit more complicated than, than the way you thought it was. But yeah, yeah definitely. Um, you know, and I'm not a musicologist. My, my father-in-law is a musicologist. I'm friends with a lot of musicologists. So I have a lot of respect for what they do, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm an amateur, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I just sort of, 
I, I keep my ear to the ground. I listen to what these guys say. I, I, I listen to the way that, that the experts play and I try to, to copy the way they play. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I'm not spending time in, in the library for the most part, you know, trying to figure out some new thing that, that uh, nobody else has figured out before. Yeah, yeah, for sure. My, my knowledge was all second generation. And that, that's not to say that, <laughs> that, that my dad knew anything about early American brass bands. It's that, it's that I learned everything I know from somebody else who, who did the, did the work to, yeah, to yeah, learn it. Right. But, um, Boston is a, is a, is a really cool example. And I, I mentioned before that I've got several Boston instruments and I really like them. Um, but you don't have a favorite. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't have a particular one favorite Boston instrument, but they're all really good. Yeah. 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 Um, before the Civil War, two of the very best American brass instrument makers were, were Samuel Graves and Elbridge Wright, who, who traded as E.G. Wright. And Graves was from uh, New Hampshire and made the very best, most beautifully decorated, uh, you know, key bugles of the yeah. kind of the early 19th century in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I think Wright worked for Graves and he was he was kind of Graves' apprentice. And then and then Wright moved to Boston and and you know graves didn't make too many sax horns i think there were a few i think graves also made some some clarinets but he's you know really known for those key bugles Wright moved to boston and started making sax horns and the right instruments are some of the very very best um you know civil war era instruments they're 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 really um smartly designed and well put together and very high quality Mm -hmm. and um after the Civil War, I believe that Graves came and kind of moved into a corner of Wright's factory in Boston. So, um, you know, you can imagine that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the the old master, we could let him get a little corner of the factory. He can he can still put out a few instruments and, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And in 1869, some of, of Wright's employees at E.G. Wright basically bought out the company. And I'm not sure exactly how it went down, but I, I have a feeling that at some point the employees kind of uh, made some investment in, in the 1869 catalog. They are described as the practical partners of Wright. Hmm. Um, and and it, it, they go, what is the, it says something like, you know, these men of, of great experience and talent uh, uh, were the practical partners in, in, in E.G. Wright. And they they basically bought out right. They 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 together with um with Graves's sons bought out Wright and Graves and combined them into one company. And that became the Boston Musical Instrument Manufactory. And I've I actually got a t shirt on here. I don't know if you guys can see it. I've got a Boston Musical Instrument Manufactory t shirt that I had made up. And <laughs> nice. and these men were the were the were the craftsmen at at Wright that, that became Boston. They became the heart of Boston. It was um, Henry Esbach, Lewis Hartman, and William Reed were their names. And I think Esbach was really the, the the kind of the master craftsman who was doing most of the actual building of instruments at, at E.G. Wright by 1869. And what happened was uh, Wright himself was not super jazzed about this arrangement. And, and left the company shortly after. And he went across the street in Boston to uh, another maker called Hall and Quimby. So, mm-hmm. uh, which was another very top of the line Boston maker. So uh, that became for like a year, Hall, Quimby and Wright. Uh, but then then what was the, the E.G. Wright company 
became the Boston Musical Instrument Manufactory. And they were making all the same instruments that E.G. Wright had made. In fact, I, I have a friend who has an E.G. Wright baritone uh, from the Civil War era, and it is absolutely identical to the Boston uh, baritone that I have. All er, Every little detail is exactly the same, except the engraving. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, so, you know, anything that says Boston on it is at least 1869. So that's one of the reasons I know that in, in the early 1870s, they were making the same instruments, yeah, you know, yeah. at least some of the same instruments that they were making in the, in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And the over-the-shoulder instruments still, um, still are in that, you know, 1869 Boston catalog. Now, um, Boston, you know, was really then Esbach's company. And Esbach was the, was, the, was the genius instrument maker. And he really designed the very first really good piston American cornet. That was the, the Boston two-star and then later the Boston three-star cornet. And that was, that was um, sort of patterned after the, the good French cornets, the, the, the Courtois and, and you know, uh, F. Besson cornets that were being made in the late 19th century. But, you know, he did some some real development of his own. And, and that was, that was kind of the, the first cornet that, um, that was a decent American cornet. Hmm. And in fact, um, Herbert L. Clark's first professional instrument was a Boston three-star cornet. Oh, nice. Um, now he's famous for playing other uh, brands of instruments later in his career, but hmm. that was his first professional instrument that he, he bought himself. Hmm. And, um, the Khan Wonder Cornet, which came out like I think in the late 1880s, is is a pretty and that's that's the instrument that made Khan's name, that made Khan yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the the juggernaut that it is was the the Khan mm -hmm. Wonder, right? Mm -hmm. That was that was a pretty literal copy of of the Boston. Hmm. So um, you know, Boston has this this place in in American music history that that's it's it's big, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they were really high quality maker at that point. Now, what ended up happening is all the original partners in Boston started dying, and um, as, you know, I, as what tends to happen. Yeah, <laughs> and and they just didn't update their line, right? So as as the 1910s and 1920s came, Boston was still selling the same instruments that they were selling in in mm. in the 1890s, and and that just wasn't cutting it anymore because. You know, while in 1860 and an 1880 instrument, there isn't much space between there. They very shortly started to figure out this acoustics thing and 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 how it worked. Yeah. And so, you know, while in the 1880s it was it was trial and error. In the 1910s, they had some some intuition about how you know if we make this taper here, it's going to fix the intonation and yeah, that partial and figured some stuff out. And they might have even they might have even. Yeah, they might have even known some of the the math at that point too, right? Mm -hmm. But um, so by by the 1910s and 1920s, they they weren't a big power anymore. They hadn't mm -hmm. kept up. They hadn't put the investment into into making these new designs, and um, and they just sort of and they they changed the name at one point. It, instead of the Boston Musical Instrument Manufactory, it became the Boston Musical Instrument Company. Mm -hmm. But it it just it wasn't a big deal anymore, and and and. Uh, Eventually, they got sold to a, a music publisher, and, and it rather than getting absorbed into another maker or something like that, like a lot of these do, they, they just sort of petered out, and, and they don't exist anymore. And, and they're not yeah, part yeah. of, they're not really a big part of the 20th century instrument story, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. true. 
Makes sense. No, it's interesting. And it shows that the way you speak about it and the knowledge you have makes sense why <clears throat> you're drawn to these instruments also. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're good quality instruments, but it's neat to, to, to think about these guys, you know, and they, they had their company and then their old boss, he went across the street to another company and, <laughs> and there was some fighting about it. And, and, you know, the, the Boston advertisements would say, you know, don't fall for, those cheap imitations that have, might have the name right on it. We're, we're the company that was formerly EG Wright, you know, and, yeah, and yeah. There, there was some cattiness there. And, and um, it's just kind of fun because these were humans, you know, they, they, they were, they were real yeah. people and, and, and they had all their drama the same way we did. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, it's fun to kind of, and like I said, I'm not a, I'm not a big history nerd or anything like that. It's kind of fun to think about, you know, who these people were and what they did and, 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 you know, a lot of thought has been put into who the players were. And, and you know, we all know the stories about the great players. But the, the instrument makers, not a whole lot of people have have, uh, have tried to figure out who, who were these guys, you know? Yeah, 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 definitely. And everybody has a story to tell, and it helps inform every aspect of playing, for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So Barry, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast this afternoon. It's been really, really awesome chatting with you and getting to hear your insights of your experience and and your your opinions. We're wondering, you know, despite the the pandemic and all all this kind of stuff, you know, people still are trying to work and get things going. So we we're wondering, do you have any projects or or anything kind of going on with you right now that you want our listeners to to know about? We'll, we'll certainly go out and buy the the Coates band CD and the the Newberry's Victorian uh, cornet band uh, CD. We we actually recorded a second Newberry's Victorian cornet band CD uh, two years ago, and uh, we're still trying to get that out. So your purchase of the original one will will help with that, I think. Um, my big passion right now is uh, some friends and I. Uh, this past November started a, a new British brass band, modern British brass band in in uh, in the D.C. Northern Virginia area. Um, Stephen, uh, you you play with us, and that's that's been fantastic. You're yep. you're an amazing player. You sit right next to me in the group. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, you know, like us on Facebook, brass band in Northern Virginia. Um, it's not an early American brass band, but it's <laughs> it's it's some amazing playing. Visit our website, brassbandofnorthernvirginia.com. And uh, and once we're back up and running, come to our concerts. That would be wonderful. Cool, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Barry. It's been awesome. Great chatting with you. Hopefully we can get you on the podcast another time. I know that there's still more that we could talk about for sure. I think I've used most of my stories already, but but sure, I'd love to. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And I, I really enjoy listening to the podcast. A lot of great information. All right. Thank you so much, Barry, for speaking with Stephen and I about all your experiences and travels. Yeah, definitely great to get the perspective of someone who's actively out doing um, historically informed performances and especially someone with as wide uh, array of experiences as Barry. If you like what you're hearing, you can find us online on our website at eabbpodcast.com. 
there are a bunch of resources up there. There are show notes for each episode. We're also everywhere on social media. So that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and especially YouTube. We're really focusing a lot of effort on putting some exclusive content up on our YouTube channel. So it would really help us out if you went over there and subscribed. Um, and that way you can stay up to date on everything we put out. <laughs> This episode's featured album is by Newberry's Victorian cornet band, Thomas Coates, the father of band music in America. This is the album that was mentioned during the episode where Barry was a featured soloist on the track My Native Land. This was also, if you've uh, heard one of our earlier episodes, one of the groups of Dr. Michael O'Connor. So uh, on our show notes page, we will have a little write-up for this Newberry's Victorian cornet band album as well as where you can purchase it and fun little recent bit of news the second album by this band that was also mentioned by dr o'connor on his episode was recently fully funded so we're looking forward to having that cd go into production and we'll be sure to keep you guys up to date on when and where the sequel album is available so again that is thomas coates the father of band music in america And we'll see you over on our website at eabbpodcast.com. And thank you very much.